Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. We are here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions. We dive into the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of addiction and recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. Hey friends, welcome to the show, hanging out with a friend of mine, Michelle Zumwalt. Michelle, I'm so excited to have you here. And I haven't talked to you in a little while, so while we're recording, we get to catch up too. Isn't that great? Thank you for having me. I really am excited to be with you today. Michelle's the author of Ruby Shoes, Surviving Prescription Drug Addiction. I've read it. It's an amazing book. I want you guys to check it out, and today, we're going to hear your story and also talk about addiction and recovery and mm. what God does and how recovery mm. is possible. But I want to remind you, friends, to please share this show uh, on social media, if you would, or leave a review on iTunes or whatever app you're listening through. That really does help. And it's uh, mm. Genuine Life Recovery is on most apps, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, and you can also listen on my website by clicking podcast at jodystevens.org. Michelle, how did we meet anyway? I think we met through the radio station. Oh, I think I had you on my show when I was on The That's Fish. That's right. Yeah, on the, yeah, we were on the radio station together. Michelle, you're also a chaplain. With Sac County Law Enforcement. I've kind of been on leave since I've been so busy with this opioid. I just started seeing so yeah. many people, so many overdose deaths. That oh I just really felt God calling me to step aside and, you know, really focus on telling people that we don't have to die from this. We can get better. Yeah. I mean, really, God saved me and that became kind of a ministry for me. And so it's been my life's work for the last few years, but I still remain, you know, a law enforcement chaplain. So Michelle's doing that. Also speaking, I know you're speaking nationally, maybe even globally about the opioid yeah. epidemic and doing awesome. some cruises, too. Yeah. I want that gig, man. I'm telling you, know, speaking on cruise ships. It's so much fun. It's like I started doing it with Princess Cruises and Uh it's just, we've just met people from all over the world and we usually try to find a charity with the part of the world that we're going to where we can donate books. And what we found is it's really a ministry. So for every hundred we sell, we give away 50. Uh, We find kind of a break even to not lose money on it. But the main thing was to get the word out. And our families traveled yeah. all over. We do book signings. We've done Barnes and Noble signings all over the country, mostly just, you know, bringing the whole family. And it's amazing how many people want to talk. I thought I was writing this to reach the people like me. And what we found mm-hmm. is there's a lot of people that want to talk to my mom who wrote the foreword. You guys would love her. And or my husband, who's awesome. And, you know, they just their family members affected by this yeah. or just devastated by loss. And so. There's just a lot of healing that God is doing and a lot of hope that he's bringing to the world around us. So I'm just super grateful to get to do it all over the place. Yay. And I'm so glad you're doing it. It's the strangest thing with addiction. It's the one thing everybody wants to talk about and nobody wants to talk about. But I feel like we need to be talking about it. And so right. I, like you, just I'll just bring it up. You know, like, yes. and if I meet someone like, how you doing? You know, are, are you staying sober? Are you doing? And they're like, whoa. But it's like, hey, I want to talk about it. And That's right. That's you know, right. there's something freeing about that, I think. That's right. Because it opens right. the door for people to be able to share. That's right. And, you know, Jody, I always think of it like this. You know, when God sent Jesus to save us, I think the mission of Jesus is to recover me, yeah. to recover all of us. That's why yeah. he loves us so much. So in a sense... 
we're all in recovery. We're just, we're in recovery from sin, from our sinful nature, you know? And so we all need God. So it talking about recovery really is everybody. It's a topic for, if you're human and you know God, you're in recovery. When I talk to people about the steps, you know, step one admitted we were powerless over our addiction, our life had become unmanageable. You know, that's step one for those that are doing the 12 steps or know much about the 12 steps. But you can also look at it you know, when people struggle with the shame where you say right. admitted we were powerless over sin, yes. that our lives had become unmanageable, that opens it up to where yes, it's right. not just addiction. Addiction may be my thing and your thing, right? right? right. But sin is right. everybody's thing. Which part of that are you powerless? Like which, you know, <laughs> plug in whatever it is, Power, you know, powerless yeah. over sin, which is what? ABC, you know, there's a zillion That's different right. things. And, you know, my husband goes to some a lot of men's meetings, and I go to a lot of women's meetings and things. But here's the thing. We all talk about different stuff. You know, women talk about food and spending and how we feel like we're, you know, struggling. to We're, we're okay if our children are okay and our husband's okay and all that stuff. And men struggle with totally different things. You know, he said, you never hear anybody go, I can't stop eating chocolate. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just... I mean, not everybody, but generally speaking, yeah. we, we sin differently. So we find people that struggle in the same way we do, and we help each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's safe to say, because I know you, that your mm-hmm. life is good today. It's awesome today. It's great yeah. today. Now, it wasn't yeah. always like that, and I can right. say the same for me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when we talk about addiction and substance use disorder, one of the things they look for to qualify is has your quality of life deteriorated? And you know, right. are things getting worse for you? And I think it's so interesting how with addiction, and I want to get into your story, but how initially we're trying to do something to make our life better. Right. Right. And so we pick up this substance because maybe we're funnier. Maybe it's just that we can fit in. Maybe like Mm -hmm. in your case, we have a medical problem or I think you'd mentioned migraines or whatever it is where we're trying to have this better quality of life. But then once the substance takes over, our quality of life continues to deteriorate to the point of for some death, like my brother, and for you almost death, and yet we keep using, and that's the insanity of addiction. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think of it as having several dynamics, and one of them is this physical, I believe that there's this physical thing that starts happening where you you can't stop, you know, even if you intend to, but also this mental obsession because of the spiritual malady that, that we, you know, we come to know is part of the human condition. And so mm-hmm. if I don't stay close to God, I fall off track really easily, you know, into yeah. other things. Maybe this will fix me. Maybe this will fix me, you know, that kind of stuff. When in yeah. truth, I'm looking for the one true spirit. I'm looking for God. And um, they used to call alcohol spirits, right? They used to call them that yeah. They used to, yeah. because it was looking for, we are seeking something outside of me to make me feel better. And it's just, like I said, it's, it's an, age old story. And I'm no different than every, than lots and lots of people, you know, and this solution is the same. That's the beautiful thing. The solution is very simple and we're already seeking God. Yeah. How long do you have? So I've got 16 years sober. Husband's got okay. 19. How many years sober oh, do you have? I got sober in October on my almost died and came back oh into gosh. recovery on October 17th of 2003. So I just had 18 years last year. 
yet. Oh, wow. And I was in an ICU in, in Mercy Folsom. I'm grateful Praise to the be Lord. alive. 18 years of sobriety. Uh -huh. Good life today. Tell us about where you were then, where you are now, and then, and then maybe just like that pivotal moment, the pivotal turning point where it was right. like, okay, this is not working. Because for everybody, there's a point where you realize you've lost control, right? And for some yes. people, it's, it's right. For some people, it's like, oh, I lost a job. I may have lost control. For some people, the bottom is I almost died. I've lost control. Yes. So it's just so different for everybody. That's I always right. find that interesting. Well, you know, I, Jody, I mean, I've shared with this with you before, but I really think my first drug, if you will, was people pleasing. I, I grew up in yeah. the South and I used to just, you know, I would think I'll be okay if, if you like me, you know, and I became kind of a chameleon, you know, how we talk about that. And, yes. you know, and so, and along with that comes a lot of guilt and shame because there's not, even as a young child, I felt that way because there's not a lot of authenticity in pretending, you know, to be things for other people. So yeah. that was probably the first thing. And, and drugs and alcohol, I grew up in a Christian home on both sides of my family. Um, and alcohol wasn't a big part of growing up, you know, and mm -hmm. prescriptions certainly weren't anything like that. So, um, but people pleasing was, you know, I'll be good enough if I can achieve enough in the world. I kind of grew up in an overachiever type family and, yeah. Yeah. you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I, and I mention it just because it's part of who I am and my struggle with this re recovery journey, even still today, you know, I and think so, um, codependency is such yes. a huge part of it, you know, oh. especially for women, they say, you take away yeah. the substance, you get a codependent and That's really right. a codependency, the definition is a loss of self, right? And yes. so that's why they you know you say you, you i feel alone in a crowd you know as an addict yes. because i don't know who i am and so yes. for me i relate to that because once i got rid of the booze i realized that the 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 codependency the not knowing who i was was a huge part of it and so part of sobriety was just finding my way back to myself because right. i didn't know who i was right that's right that's right that's right and you don't even recognize that until you get in trouble so some of the yeah. things you know, where, where I went with this was, you know, some of that thing, it's, it's beautiful now to see those, understand that and how God is teaching me those things about myself. And I catch yeah. it easier now, but, mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'll tell you, I started college at the university of Arkansas, <clears throat> go hogs. <laughs> and, and, um, that was I was just thing. noticing your accent there a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I should have known as I've known you for That's a while, funny. but for some reason, when you said Arkansas, I said, uh, Oh, yeah, I hear that little bit of Southern. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, I've been out in California for, gosh, since, um, goodness, like since 1982. So uh -huh. anyway, I, um, but that was probably my first real experience. And with any kind of, you know, substance significantly, I guess. I was at this fraternity party. It was before a big game. And I remember making my hair really big and, you know, wearing the red clothes and it, we, football's really big in the South and that's yeah. not a shocker, but, but, you know, it right. was just, it was fun. And, and I had all the right, you know, date and the right outfit and the right parties to go to. And it was all organized, you know, and, and, um, I'd spent my whole life to this point being this people pleaser, you know, I had a full academic scholarship there and I was like girl state Senator and, you know, homecoming and, mm -hmm student body president and all these things 
and I was still this empty person, you know? Mm. And when I got there, I was like still trying to have everything be perfect. And I remember going to that first fraternity party and they had this huge punch bowl on the table and in it was Everclear. And it oh my gosh! Like I know it, and not very many people know. I'm surprised you know what that is, Jody. We did that in in a college party, and we took in the. <laughs> sorry, I have to interrupt. We took no, this good. gal Robin took these frozen fruit balls and put oh. them in this straight Everclear, and we made this Everclear punch. And people were eating the fruit balls, and this dude got like alcohol poisoning, and he's like foaming at the mouth. Michelle, oh, this isn't a, a college. This is at our college, oh. and. People People were taking Sharpies and writing on him, and oh, we were so wasted. We didn't get it, Michelle. And yeah, I still yeah. think about that today going, yeah. that kid could have died, and we could yes. have been prosecuted, and we did not give an S. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I yes. can't believe how crazy we were. I, yeah. I just, I look yeah. at that, and I go, I go, our brains were not developed. Like, yeah. we, we didn't even think... Like this kid could have died and they're like right. making faces on right. him and he has foam right. on his mouth. I mean, that's right. it's that's crazy. Right. If yeah. you're a kid and you're listening to this alcohol, I mean, it killed my brother. Alcohol poisoning can kill you. Uh, yes. And then just to throw in the fentanyl yes. thing, if you take something, you don't know what it's laced with. So we're in yeah. scary times. So oh, yeah. watch out street, young especially. people. Anyway, yeah. I want you to get back to your story. So oh, yeah, you were, like, you were yeah, experiencing Everclear. Time. but what I the reason I was mentioning that first time was because I can vividly remember wow this is so much easier than what I've been doing that feeling of peace and serenity that came with that first drink was just like huh and suddenly I didn't have to worry about what he thought and if we won the game and if my hair was still big and my lipstick was still on I mean life was good I could comprehend the serenity and I knew peace you know I was (laughs) I was truly at peace you know and so my my thing was I spent a lot of time at the punch bowl at the University of Arkansas and I remember my daddy called they had moved out to California that my after I graduated and started college and he said, you know, Michelle, he said, I've never seen grades like this from you. And I said, he's like talking about economics or something. And I said, I didn't even know I was taking economics, you know, because I was like <laughs> at the punch bowl at the University of Arkansas yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah, so, yeah, I know what you mean. Anyway, so yeah, so I transferred out here at to California. They they were excited to have me move out here and I finished college out here. But all through those years in college, I, it became like high school all over again. You know, I was a camellia princess in Sacramento. It's kind of like the Rose Parade, but not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. I always tease people about it. It's kind of like being on the Rose Parade, but not anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. used to have that camellia On a festival. smaller scale. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, I was back in church groups and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't involved in alcohol at all or anything like that. Because not because I thought I had a problem, but just because I was doing the people pleasing thing. I think I was back into, I'll be a good girl and I'll be okay, no matter what. And I got to tell you something, Jody, that I try to remember every time I talk to share. And I remember graduating from college and getting this diploma, you know, and it was real small. And I looked at it and I thought, I don't feel any different. You know, and Mm. the reason I try to mention that is because a recovery counselor years later told me something profound that changed. We use it still today in our lives. When I was speaking at something last night, I was sharing about it and talking about how many times we've talked about this with our girls. But he said, 
he said, you know, Michelle, I was talking about that experience with my college diploma and not feeling any different. And he said, you know, there's two kinds of happiness in this world. He said, there's big H happy and there's little H happy. And Mm. he said, they're very similar. So it's easy to get them confused, you know? So he said, little H happy is all that outside stuff. You know, I got a nice car, a nice house, plenty of money, Mm -hmm. a good job, your good opinion of me, you know, people like me or whatever. And he said, big H happy is my life has meaning and purpose. You know, I know what I was put on this planet for and I'm useful in God's world. You know, I can share, I know that I'm loved by God and I can share that and want other people to feel that as well. You know, Mm, and he said, they're very similar, but it's easy to, so it's easy to get them confused. But he said, the thing about little H is you can do everything right and still lose it. I mean, the pandemic really showed us you yeah. can lose that job. You can lose your money. You can lose your health. You know, you can lose all kinds of things that you worked hard and you deserve, you know, but yeah. big H, you can always have it no matter what. And so what he was saying was recovery and the life in recovery is all about seeking the big H and having that. I know through the pandemic, we really felt that, you know, that it was it was a profound, and so all the way through the girls' school and everything, we would say, get an A in calculus. Is this little H or big H? Yay. It's a lot of little H, you know. Oh, my gosh. Sarah got into medical school last year. Is that big H or little H? That's little H. But what you can do for God and for good in the world with a medical degree, that's the big H, the difference yeah. you can make in people's lives. So anyway, well, so and, that but was, that's so profound yes. because yes. one of the things I know I related to that too because I had that very what's called in psychology an external locus of control where what that means is my who I was and my identity was determined by things outside of myself. Yes. And this is what drives addiction because things outside of ourselves we can never have control over. That's and right. so for me there was all this Um, what's called free-floating anxiety because I couldn't control all those things outside of myself that were defining who I was. That's right. You intuitively know that, that you were powerless. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where you got to give it to God and then look at like I was spending so much time trying to control through obsessing. I didn't overtly control people. I was just trying to, you know, obsess that like at one point I felt God say, you spend so much time obsessing over things you can't control. You miss the opportunity to control what you can. Right. And so it's like, you know, you have to kind of break it down and go, is this something I have control over? And is it not? And I think it's then through that process where then God can come in and and show us. Because when we're being defined by all that stuff, we don't know who we are. Because who we are is determined by all that stuff outside of ourselves. And that's when God has to come in and go, no, this is who you are. It's like that John Calvin saying, there's no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. No knowledge of self without knowledge of God. Like it works together. We have to know yes. him and, and, and our place, at, right. you know, as a creator or as he's he's the creator, we're the creature. But then we have to allow him to show us who we are, too, you know, and who yes. he created us to be. So anyway, right. I, I digress. That's but right. I that it, no, that was not. an important yeah. point. The, yes. the big it, H and the little H, very similar to to yes. what we allow to find who we are, you know. That's right. That's right. And I still, to this day, we can look at, you know, I'm seeking this or, or, you know, what am I, 
what am I running after? Well, this is, if yeah. I lose, something, yeah. it's just a little age anyway. So, but at, um, so after college, I, you know, told you about getting how I felt with that. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I started a job in corporate America where I really, you know, I could start, you know, going to in the eighties boardrooms were really had bars in there, you know, uh, every boardroom, a lot oh of gosh. alcohol done over yeah. contracts and things. And I had started getting headaches uh, in college. And so I really think the combination of alcohol with prescription drugs really complicated my disease. You know, it's mm. like it catapulted it, which, yeah. you know, yeah. cause I, you know, I probably would have drug on lost for a long time, but in the next few years, a lot of bad things happened to me as soon as I started on prescriptions. And that was about the time that they were, uh, really changing the way, you know, they were changing the, the, pain management community had taken over the opioid, you know, like Oxy was coming on the scene in those days. And, and they were saying things like, you know, you can't become addicted to this. Of course, now they know that that's not true. And they, and they, you know, but they had, were changing prescribing practices. So it was like a perfect storm for somebody like me to show up. You know, well, and, and really, doctors were told to to treat yes. pain, and that if they didn't, they wouldn't get marks, good marks. I had a doctor right. tell me he said, "You know, we wouldn't yes. get good marks from our our patients." And then he goes, right. he goes, and then he goes. So it was really complex. He goes, yes. but then it was really pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, like, that's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> and, and I did have even when doctors realized that I was in um, trouble. And yet it was one of those, you know, you have to treat pain or you're going to be in more trouble if you don't treat the pain that she's saying she has. And I did have really good doctors that would pull me aside and say, hey, this is going to kill you towards the end, you know. But um, but so it was the the headaches. And then I was getting I was certainly addicted to that stuff really quickly um, and was in, you know, if I didn't have the medicine. I would be, you know, I was running a drug fever, which they now know was a drug fever from chronic opioids. But, you know, of course, I'm just like, you know, put me in the hospital again so I can get more and more and more because, you know, that was like as much as I wanted for as long as I wanted. So I went through a dark, probably three year period of my life there where I was like, I had a DUI in Orange County. It's funny as a law enforcement chaplain, I've sat on, I've stood on, you know, DUI checkpoints with the, one mm. of the first ones I was on, one of the sergeants looked at me and he goes, so chaplain, have you ever been to one of these? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no. why do I answer this question for you? You know, because, you know, because I was like, you know, but, but I, I knew that in recovery, I needed to be honest with him. And I was glad that I did all those years later, because he needed later to talk to me about something happening in his family. And I had told him the truth about my struggle with it all. But, but yeah, I got a DUI during that time. It was, um, prescription drugs and alcohol. And I started having seizures because of the amount of medicine that I was on. And it just, I just really started having trouble. So my family intervened and put me in a care unit in Orange County in 1990. And that was where I started getting introduced to recovery, you know, 12-step recovery, all the different recovery programs. There's many, many different kinds and uh, Christian recovery. And there's a lot, mostly free recovery everywhere, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of where I shuffled in. And, and I was the, I was the person like, you may relate to this Jody, that was like, 
So yeah, this is good for you. I'm so happy that you guys have this stuff for you, you know, but yeah. I'm just never going to take prescription right. drugs again. Yeah. And this is not from, you know, I was terminally unique, truly. Of course, of course. You know? And yeah. emphasis yeah. on the word terminally, right? Mm-hmm. You know. This doesn't so, apply to me. I've got my own right. program. Yep, that's right. And it just, it just took me really by storm. I just, you know, for years I was in and out of recovery. I'd be coming in and then next thing you know, I'd be like, you know, prescription people, they're not doing, they're usually not, it's a very private addiction. You know, we're in our mm. closet sneaking yeah. pills out of a shoe. You know, that we got a <laughs> bottle of pills in there, a boot. Is, is that what the ruby shoes means? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the ruby shoes were no. It's not okay. that. I was just, I, I, you know, because of the cover of your book has the pills by the shoes, and so I thought yes. maybe the, the yes. pills were oh my hiding in the shoes. Because why would your husband look in the shoes? You know. Oh, that's right. Oh, I love that you said that. That's so funny. No, it's it. You know, I'll tell you about that, but but um, it's a metaphor about how mm-hmm. much Jesus had already done for me. It was a free gift that was given to me, you know. What was the, was this oxy that you were addicted to? Or was it, was, well, A, was it all different pills? A, right. and then B, I'm just curious how you were able to get the prescriptions. Were you buying them off the street as well? No. Or were you always just getting them from doctors? Right. From Yes, they were all prescribed. Yeah, oh I was just gosh. on massive quantities. So, you know, because you got to remember during that time, it was really changing the whole environment, the prescribing practices and everything were changing in the 90s, in the late 80s. But you were on enough to kill you. I mean, how does that work? Yeah. In fact, I was, well, I, you know, it's amazing. At the end, I'll jump to the very end for my, you know, because I, like I said, I spent years, I met and married my husband in -hmm. recovery. We had these two beautiful little girls, you know. And the opioid epidemic was raging in our country, mm, you know. Yeah. In fact, what's really funny, I'll tell you this, I I worked on a law that's hanging right above me in my office in the state of California, changing a law. Uh, and it was about the beginning of the opioid thing. And I was like trying to say, just make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else. I was in recovery at the time. Mm-hmm. But it was like in Ruby Shoes, I write about it as if it's a captured broom. You know how Oz, who's this human not God, but this human man who's telling people to go, you know, it's a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. That they're, he's telling people to go get, if you can prove yourself worthy, you can capture the broom of the wicked witch, you know, and, mm-hmm. and God never really does that. You know, he never makes me, puts me in dangerous situations to prove myself worthy of his love. I have it already, you know, yeah. but in that I was running after, you know, I'll be okay if I can change the law in the state of California, which mm-hmm. I did. You know, and they gave me a copy of it, had it all fancy framed and everything. It still didn't save me. And I remember leaving during that period. This was in 93 from the state capitol. And there was such a, ma- a massive amount of money on the other side with the prescription. I mean, the opioid, um, the big pharma on the other side and the way mm-hmm. they wanted to change with pain management, you know, prescribing where anything goes. My husband and I left there and I cried all the way home and said, you know, there's a tsunami of death coming to America. And he said, I'll never forget you saying that because we knew that the money was on the other side and that there was mm. just a massive amount of change 
that was coming with the way they were doing that. And it was going to get a lot worse because they were telling people, you know, you can't become addicted to this. And I kept saying, yeah, I know, you know, if you're really in pain, you can't become addicted, you know, and those kind of things. And of course we know we've known for a millennia that that's not true, that opiates are very addictive, you know, but, um, well, and what people don't realize is if you have the proclivity for addiction, yes, you know, because yes. not everybody does. Some people right. take it and they don't like it. But like you were yes. saying, when you take it and you feel like everything's okay, life is good, as opposed to the person that's like, oh, my God, I can't stand taking, get off this. you yeah. know, that codeine. It makes me want to sleep. If you're the yeah. person, like I tried an opioid once. It was it was Norco. And I was like, this is heaven. This is the best thing in the yeah. world. Luckily, I knew in my sobriety, this was for some tooth yeah. thing, that I could not continue that because that's how my brain is. My brain right. is addicted. If you have an addictive brain, plus if you have some of the other warning signs like, uh, you know, the, the adverse childhood experiences or trauma, there's and, 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 and the biology or, you know, that where it runs in the family, the genetics, there's a very good chance that you have what's called an addicted brain. And it's yeah. very different than someone that doesn't have that, right? Right. right. I, I told you, I, I had a doctor friend that told us, you know, he always tells people that have never had an opiate the first time they take it. If you have a, if you have that feeling of euphoria and mm-hmm. life is good, you want to get up and clean the kitchen. That's not a normal reaction to this opiate. But if you have the feeling of, I got to get, go take a nap. I can't, can't stay awake with this. And how soon can I get off of this stuff? It makes me yeah. feel like wood or something, you know, like, uh, then that's, that is a normal reaction. And that's why you don't want to take this long term. But so, but yeah, so for me, I was, like I said, I was in and out of recovery for years, uh, Mm -hmm. and met and married my husband. And, but then I would get these headaches and I would think, you know, I'm different than all these people in recovery and, you know, um, and I still have headaches and I would just go get a prescription of something that I would never talk to them about. Never, Mm -hmm. ever, you know, the first word, first step is we, and I never, when I was going to go do something like pick up a prescription, I sure wasn't going to tell my mom and dad or my husband about it or anybody, any of my girlfriends, I was just going it alone. You know, I was Uh secret about it. And that's always it. That's for me, even today, anything I do like totally in secret, you know, the other day I was eating some Skittles and I threw them away and I put a paper towel on top of it. Not that anybody in my family cares two hoots if I eat a bag of Skittles, but it's something in me that said, I didn't need to be eating that whole bag of Skittles. <laughs> you know, right. so that It's kind of like in the Garden of Eden, hiding yeah, myself. Yeah. You know, So the shame thing, when I start hiding, I know this is not from God. This is not what God wants me to be doing, no yeah. matter what it is. You know, mm-hmm. I can't go it alone. So, but yeah, so I'll jump to the very end, Jody, so so we can talk about other things. But so what happened for me was in October of 2003, I was one more time in this uh, place of, um, you know, like I'm going to fill this prescription and just I would cycle really, really quickly into massive amounts of narcotics. So within about a 10 day period, I was in ICU in mm. Mercy Balsam and I was on I'll tell you how much medicine, just for people that know about these things. I was on just Demerol. I was on about a thousand milligrams. I was getting about a thousand milligrams every 10 hours, which is a lethal dose. Every 10 hours I was getting a lethal dose. And that's how much my body had become accustomed to. I was just on massive quantities of opiates. And I, um, you know, what happened to me in that hospital 
was like you said, pivotal moments in your life. Mm -hmm. This was it. Okay. And it was my, if you ever, you know, I started feeling like a, a, a rattling, like I couldn't breathe. And my body was, you know, that death rattle they talk about. You've heard somebody at the end of life, you know, with that, I was breathing real rattly and I couldn't mm. move my body at all. I started, oh feel, I felt like I, you ever touched a dead person, they're real stiff, but kind of cold. I laid there and breathed like that and couldn't move. Oh and in gosh. the hospital, I could hear the doctor and the nurses. I could hear them saying my saturation dropped below 50% and I was dying. They were saying, we're losing her and all these things. And I laid in that hospital bed and I begged God, like I've never uh, prayed before ever, you know? And I started saying, please, I'll never do this again. I'll never, Mm. please God, I'll never do this again. And I begged and begged and begged. And I, and I remembered feeling this sense of peace and love. Like I'd never understood, you know, I felt like God loved me completely, completely in my most if you think about it, I'm in my most sinful, selfish, self-centered moment. I had two little girls at home that loved me. I had a husband that loved me at home. And I was in the hospital pushing a button, demanding more drugs every hour, you mm. know. And they, and I saw this faint vision of my youngest daughter, who was four and a half, Katie. Um, and she was standing there. It was just like a vision of her little bitty Katie standing there at the foot of my hospital bed. And I was begging God, I'll never do this again. I'll never, ever do this again. Please, God, let me live. I, I don't want to die. And he was like, I felt this peace. Like, come on, you know, it's okay. You're not going to get this. It's okay. I felt completely loved by God, not a judgment, mm-hmm. a complete sense of love. Like I've never felt before, you know? Wow. And in that moment, you know, I knew who I was talking to. Have you ever, you know, through your, growing up in a church, I heard about Jesus. I had accepted him when I was young and all these things. But I knew beyond any doubt in my mind that I was talking to Jesus. I was crying out to Jesus. I said his yeah. name over and over again in that hospital bed. And I begged God to let me live. And it took probably about 45 minutes of laying there fully surrendered before I started feeling some tingling in my hands and I knew it's funny. I can feel tingling right now in my hands. Isn't that weird? But I knew Jody that I was going to live. And I, and I was, Mm. my prayers changed from please, please, please to thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I knew the women I was going to run back to, to help me. I knew where I was going to go, you know, and, and I knew the help that I needed and I was fully surrendered. You know, I was surrendered Mm. and I, my husband showed up right after that. They had called him and he rushed up there and he said, do you have your white flag? And I looked at my wristband and I had tears in my eyes. He was crying and I said, I'll use this. And it was my wristband. It was a white wristband, you know, from the hospital. And I carry that wristband. It's in my recovery books. It's in my Bible. I mean, I carry it a lot of times everywhere I go, certainly when I taught. And we hand out a lot of white flags to people. We get handkerchiefs from the Walmart. We give people white flags of surrender to Jesus all the time in in law enforcement, in medical communities, first responders everywhere, because there's so many things in our life that we're just completely powerless over. And that's become a great tool in my life. But the last thing I want to tell you is that right after that, I had a stroke 
So when I came mm. back, it was because of the massive quantities of narcotics yeah. that I had in my system and my lungs had filled with fluid, just the trauma of the event. You know, as a, as a law enforcement chaplain, I've done so many overdose deaths. And so I kind of know what it was like. You know, I, I, I went through it, you know. It's, I'm no different than everybody else. I don't know why I got a second chance, except that I needed to know that God loved me. And if there's yeah. any message anybody hears me say today, please hear this. God loves us completely right where we are. I don't have to be skinny. I don't have to be rich. I don't have to sell a bunch of books. I don't have to do anything. He loved me completely as a broken, completely empty woman in a hospital bed dying. And if he can love me there, he can love, he loves all of us completely, no matter what we're doing. And that's the kind of love that we have to know if we're going to truly surrender our lives to God, right? It's like we go from, I'm broken. I got nothing to turn my life over to God. No, I get to sit every day and remember how much God loves me, you know, and accept that love and, and be grateful for that love and share that love. Because that's yeah. how I can live a surrendered life. So wow. anyway, that's kind of where it changed for me. Everything changed. I used to go to things and I'd think, is this going to be good for me? Now I go everywhere and I think, what can I bring to this? You know, that shift mm. in the way God I used to think. I didn't get everything I deserved in life. And now I sit in the back of police cars with people that are getting what I deserved. You know, and, oh. and my prayers used to all be, God, help me, help me, help me. And yeah. Now my prayers are a lot of, uh, God, use me today, you know, use me. God, and God, use me and make me usable. <laughs> yes. That's what I always pray. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love that, Jody, and make me usable. Love it. Yeah. Oh. What a story. I just, wow. Thank you so much for sharing mm. that. So powerful that God brought you back from the brink of death to now share yeah. this with other people. Such a powerful story, Michelle. Thanks for joining me for part one. We are going to continue this conversation when we roll out part two, and we are going to talk about how you worked through the shame. We're going to talk about the instrumental role of family in recovery. We're going to talk addiction, isolation, and the power of connection. We're going to talk about the beauty and joy and fun of recovery, and also hope in the midst of the opioid crisis and more. So don't miss part two with my friend, Michelle Zumwalt, author of Ruby Shoes, Surviving Prescription Drug Addiction. Get it on Amazon. You can get it on paperback or the the Kindle version. So thanks for being here, friends. Remember to share this program on social media or with anybody you know struggling with addiction, codependency, friends, family members, maybe it's you. And you can also listen on most of the apps. We're on uh, iTunes and Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon, uh, Audible. And you can also click podcast at jodystevens.org. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email, genuinelife at jodystevens.org. Thanks so much for hanging out, friends. We'll talk to you next time.